This one's for Randy. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I interview people who have already achieved financial independence to find out how they did it. Uh, I'm really excited about my guest today. It's Todd Tresseter from FinancialMentor.com. Uh, Todd's been in the investing game for quite a while. He uh, he started his career in the hedge fund industry and learned a ton about investing and uh, ended up retiring at the age of 35 uh, back in the 90s, and he's been retired ever since. Um, after you know a few years of retirement, he decided to uh, give back and start a, a financial coaching mentoring site uh, called FinancialMentor.com, uh, and he's built up a, a huge library of uh, just incredible resources over there. He's got calculators, lots of articles, uh, books that he's written. Um, it, it's it's really just a ton of information over there. And I'm really excited to chat with him about, you know, what he's learned over the years about investing and about, you know, 20 years of financial independence almost. And uh, it's, it's going to be a really great discussion. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, before we dive in, though, um, I hope you can tell that my voice sounds a little bit clear. Um, after doing all of these previous episodes on a free headset that my colleague gave me, I figured uh, it was about time to actually fork out some money and buy a proper microphone. So hopefully you're enjoying the smooth sounds of the of the new podcast. So hopefully you like it. Um, I also wanted to quickly thank everyone who's left a review for the show on iTunes. Um, it's great to get feedback. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to leave your thoughts on the show. And if, uh, if anyone else is interested and wants to do that for me, that'd be great. I will leave a link in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, it'd be great to get your feedback. Um, so yeah, without further delay, I'll just uh, introduce Todd. Todd, thanks a lot for being here. Right on. Thanks for having me on the show, Brandon. So, uh, so you've you've been in this game for a while. Obviously, financialmentor.com. Uh, you must have snapped that up pretty early on because it's a it's an amazing domain. So, uh, for my listeners who may not you know haven't come to your site or something, uh, could you just tell a little bit about yourself and you know how Financial Mentor came about? Yeah. So. Um you're right. It did. It did happen a while ago <laughs> to get the financial mentor domain. So I quote unquote, like if you could see me, I'm holding up air quotes. I quote unquote retired at age 35, which, again, if you could see me, you'd know that was a long time ago, basically 20 years ago. Um, so I'm 54 right now as we record this. Um, and what happened was, you know, once I had quote unquote retired, I had made several mistakes. I went out and I did the classic thing of I, you know, you go do more of what you're good at or whatever. I took a, a year off. Uh, we traveled. My wife and I did a six month trip around the world. It was our honeymoon. We got married right after I sold the company. Um, did a bunch of stuff. I fumbled. I made a few mistakes business wise, and then um, my wife kind of got tired of hearing me bab- uh, avoid conversations around finance and financial independence. You're probably familiar with this, Brandon. You know, people, they don't really get what it's about. And so you have to fast forward and go back to, this is like 97, 98, 1997, 1998, and the stock boom was on and everybody thought it was about hot stock tips. You know, and it's just the flavor of the day, right? Like you can go to 2007, everybody thought it was about real estate investment, right? right? Whatever the flavor of the day is, that's what everybody thinks financial independence is about. And of course it's not. Um, And so... I was just trying to avoid the conversations. People didn't even have the right questions to ask, and I was just trying to stay clear of the whole thing. And my wife finally got tired of it, and she put me to the test, and she just said, uh, 
you know, why don't you do something with this knowledge you learned? I mean, it worked for you, you know, and it's totally not how most people see stuff. And so why don't you do something with it? And so that was kind of the birth of Financial Mentor. Uh, again, you know, dating myself here, but Corey Rudel was a leading internet marketer in his day. He's the one that most of the big name internet marketers learn from that you know today. Um, and the only reason you don't know his name is he put a Porsche into a wallet about 200 miles an hour. Um, but I saw him at one of his first public speaking experiences, or his per- first public speaking things. And that's where I got the idea of building out a website and becoming a teacher and educator was I, I saw him speak and he just really hooked me on what the internet was about and how to do it. And that's where I grabbed the domain financial mentor. So nice. anyway, yeah, and you've created the, an amazing resource. Uh, you know, I'll put a link in the show notes, obviously, but you know, you have, you have everything over there. You got a huge collection of calculators. You've got a podcast, you've got tons of great articles. You've written many books that you sell on Amazon. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a it's an impressive amount of information, um, and it's all really great information. So, well done, well, thanks. yeah, well done for doing that. But um, so let's go back. Yeah, just and that's my warm up act, man. I got plans <laughs> for years ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you got to slow down. You're you're retired. What's going on? Um, yeah. So uh, let's go back actually before before you reach financial independence. So, you know, um. You said 1997, you retired at the age of 35. So how, how did you get there and what, what, what was that path like? Just classic formula like you've heard everybody else talk about. Um, I made more than I spent and I, and I invested the difference wisely, right? So because I, I went in the hedge fund business. So I, back date to college. When I came out of college, um, my point of committing to becoming financially independent, I can still remember the day. Uh, I was attending UCLA and um, there's an area called Santa Monica Park. It's right down by the Santa Monica Pier. It's a set of bluffs over the ocean. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, probably most people have seen it because it gets featured in a lot of films. They shoot films there a lot. Um, anyway, there's a lot of bums that kind of more or less live there. And I remember I had I had, had a bunch of friends graduate ahead of me and had gone off to Cubicle Nation and were wearing their suits and they were out running, buying their Porsches and being excited about that whole lifestyle thing. And I remember... Um, riding my bike through the park. It was a gorgeous day. I was heading down to the beach and I thought, wow, you know, these guys in the park, these bums living on the park benches, playing guitars and, you know, the food trucks would come by and serve them. They have food trucks that just feed the, you know, the poor, the people living, the homeless. And I thought, wow, they have more freedom than my buddies do that graduated from UCLA and went off to Cubicle Nation. Right. And, and, you know, granted, they have fancy apartments and they have their Porsches and they have their nightlife and their fancy suits. But I kind of had a high value on freedom. I, I valued, you know, my experiences over stuff. I valued what I did with my day and what I thought about and what I created. Um, I didn't have a big value on a Porsche. And so I just committed at that point. I said, well, as long as I have to lead an economic life, I may as well design it to result in financial independence. And that was kind of my commitment point. I couldn't make sense of any other alternative. I just said, well, let me just design my life to be financially independent. And so I started reading all about how you become financially independent. And I started studying the subject and getting biographies of people who built wealth and just trying to figure it out. And I never changed from that. Wow. And this was, this was if I research correctly, I think this was about when you were like 23 and you're still, you know, in some debt from, from studying. Is that correct? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. So 22, actually, because I got out in four years. Um, so I would have been 22. And uh, yeah, I was in debt from school. I had student loan debt. And so, yeah, I did not come out with Silver Spoon. I start out with debt and problems like everyone else. And then 12 years later, you're completely free. So, yeah, if you could talk about, you know, how did you, you know, how did you structure your life and what, what changes did you make to, to well, do that quickly? Well, yeah, so as part of studying financial independence, you know, I realized that if, if you're going to be financially independent, ultimately you have to become a master investor. Um, there's no way around it, right? Because the return on your assets ultimately determines your, your freedom and the growth of your wealth. And so I just said, well, I may as well get paid to learn that and, you know, kind of double down on the whole thing. And so I went into the investments field. And it's kind of an interesting play. It's, I've never told this story on a podcast before because I was getting job offers for really like the blue shoe investment firms, like all the ones, you know, where you'd wear a suit and you'd go to cubicles and all that. And I was getting very lucrative job offers because I had a pretty good resume coming out of college, which is a whole nother story. Um, but I took a really bizarre offer. I took a $500 draw on commission with a startup hedge fund because I was clear that my goal was to learn how to invest. And I was never going to learn how to invest being a cog in a wheel in a very large scale investment firm. Um, and that was my goal. I wanted to become a master investor. And so instead I got into an upstart hedge fund and I'd already been developing um, statistical risk management systems on the side and researching it and stuff like that. That was what I was interested in doing. And that's how I got the offer. And uh, I made nothing for like the first year, two years, I made nothing. But what happened was I became so valuable that I was immediately moved to partner status. And then when the firm took off, um, it was incredibly lucrative and I made a whole lot of money and I never raised my lifestyle above college kid. Wow. Um, so I just kind of kept my lifestyle where I was comfortable. I didn't need anything more and I just banked it. And so it's really easy to become financially independent when you make a whole lot of money and you just bank it. Right. So what are, what are some of the big lessons you learned throughout those years work, you know, working for a hedge fund and uh, focusing solely on, investing um was it more you know on the risk management side of things or did you yeah yeah so that was yeah so this is gonna i mean you know i'm not okay so this is gonna fly in the face of how most people teach investing uh but the game is risk management um you know risk is not equal to reward like people commonly teach risk equals reward in the world of product most people understand investing from a product perspective you know, like, should I own value? Should I own growth? Should I own small cap, large cap, international versus domestic, right? Mm -hmm. All these different styles. It's all different. It's all about product. And that's how investing is almost always taught because people have an assumption that it's all about what's a good investment. When you really understand investing done right, investing is about process, not product. And when you understand process versus product, you realize that risk equals reward in the world of product but risk and reward are inversely related. In other words, the less risk you take, the more you make once you understand investment process. And so there's different dimensions to the puzzle. It's probably way beyond what we can get to in this podcast. But there's a much deeper level of an investment understanding than most people teach. You know, what, what, the way I teach it is that there's nothing wrong with how it's conventionally taught, right? I don't want to make people wrong here. So the conventional teaching of low-cost passive index asset allocation, right? Mm -hmm. That's like the conventional wisdom. Nothing wrong with it. It absolutely works. And by the way, and by the way, I'm judging it is does it have a positive expectancy that's provable based on historical research, right? Right, right. That's the criteria of what's valid and what isn't is does it have positive expectancy? And so the answer is yes. And there's a very good reason why, and we can go into that if you want, but the answer is yes. So it does meet the criteria 
it's a valid strategy. The question is not whether it's valid or not. The question is whether or not it's the most efficient path, whether whether or not it has the best risk-reward ratio. And then the other thing, too, because this podcast is about financial independence, there's a much bigger question here that almost no one discusses, and that is, is volatility something that should be managed or accepted? In a traditional asset allocation, the answer is always that volatility must be accepted. There is no way to manage it because that's the big bad T word timing, Mm -hmm. right? Because the only way you can manage volatility is to have a sell discipline, right? Because you have to manage market risk. Mm -hmm. And so that goes into the world of voodoo, according to a lot of people. And so, um, but what happens when you're financially independent, when you're living off your assets, is you cannot endure prolonged what I'll call flat spots, So let's use the recent market history as an example. You've got the period from 2000 to 2012 or 13 before the the S&P or before markets started showing any sense of profit over like a 12, 13-year period, right? Right. Okay. And so that's what I'll label that just for simple terms, a flat spot. If you're using conventional 4% rule, right? And I'm not saying I agree with it or disagree. That's a whole nother conversation we can get into. Um, But just for for benchmark, because it's not that far off. So let's just use it as a benchmark and use the conventional 4% rule. In a 12-year flat spot, you're going to have a drawdown volatility adjusted to greater than 50% in your portfolio. So the idea here is, yes, the markets always come back, but your portfolio won't. Right, right. you got to survive those spots so that your portfolio is meaningful enough to, you know, have gains that can compensate. So, yeah, I got just... yeah, you have to you have to have regular new highs, and conventional asset allocation can't assure that if you're going to spend from your portfolio and live off it. So the the key distinction here is that um, investment research is typically done on the assumption of a buy and hold portfolio, conventional asset allocation, like a sixty forty split or whatever. Right, mm-hmm. that's how they do conventional investment research. Retirement planning. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Conven- investment research always. I'm sorry, I got it backwards. Investment research always assumes that there's no additions or withdrawals from a portfolio. That it's, you start with a certain dollar amount and you get your gains or losses at the end. Mm-hmm. Okay, so but they vary the investment strategy. Retirement planning research always assumes a conventional 60-40 or asset allocation portfolio or buy and hold portfolio, but then they vary the inflows and outflows from the fund. Mm-hmm. You have to combine both to get a whole picture. Yeah, nobody's yeah. yeah, I actually just listened to your podcast with Wade Fowl, um, which I believe was your first one. Um, yeah. And that was, yeah, that was really good to, to listen to you guys chat back and forth about about withdrawal strategies and things like that. So I'll link to that as well in the show notes. Um, so so what, what from what you learned during those, you know, hedge fund years, um, do you still use most of that in your in your personal investing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, so you're not, you're not very passive even these days when you, um, you know. Well, yeah, let's get clear. This, this is being recorded in beginning of November of 2015. I would be anything but passive with interest rates approaching zero and valuations in the U.S. stock market in the top 6 7% of recorded history. All right. So, what, I, so what are you I, doing to, to sort of... Um, it's it, okay. So this is a tough one, Brandon, because people always want like the soundbite, like, what do you do with your money? And I can't do it justice in a, in a quick interview. And I'm not trying to be cagey, right? Oh, no, no. But, it, but it's kind of like, you know, 
so how do you do brain surgery, <laughs> right. right? So do you just cut across the cranium? Is that the quick answer, <laughs> right? It, it, it's not quite that simple. There's a, you have to get a deeper understanding to know how to put the puzzle pieces together. And if I try to soundbite it for an interview, it's not going to come out right. It's going to mislead sure, people. Sure, sure. Well, uh, like in the past, I know you've, you've, you've seen, you know, high risk, you know, riskier scenarios, you know, leading up to maybe the housing bubble bursting yeah. and things like that. And, uh-huh. you, and you've known enough to get out, um, you know, when Correct. when you don't necessarily know when the bubble is going to pop, but you know that the environment is such that, um, it, you know, it's not a good thing to have your money in. So is that sort of a similar situation you find yourself in now? And if, yes. if, if not, then we can, you know, move no, on. No, 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 no. It's cool. The way you approached it is really a good one. Okay. So what you're addressing here is you can look at valuation will tell you the risk reward environment, but it's a very blunt edge tool. It is not a timing tool per se, but it tells you the environment you're in. So it tells you what toolbox to pull out. Right. Okay. Okay. So for example, um, like I have, I, it's well documented that I exited all my real estate in 2005, 2006. It took me about two years to unwind it all because it's, you know, they're large apartment complexes and stuff. I literally sold everything and paid the taxes near the top of the bubble. And I was openly ridiculed. I mean, the, the brokers and everything, they couldn't believe that I was just going to pay the taxes and not 1031 exchange the money and, you know, keep right, it invested. Right, yeah. And I was like, I was like, there's no deal that makes sense. I mean, people were buying the stuff from me at two, two and a half times what I would be willing to pay for it. And there was absolutely no way to make sense of a deal. It was such a bubble, right? Right. And so I just said, well, I'm just going to pay the taxes. Now, as you said at the time, I had no idea it was the absolute top. Like, I did not know, right? All I knew was the risk reward made no sense. And if somebody wants to pay me two and a half times what I'm willing to Buy it for, and then I had a lot of other ancillary indicators that just come from me having experience across broad markets. So, like my tenants that were moving out of my apartment buildings, these guys didn't even really qualify to get a five or six hundred dollar month apartment from me, you know, because I know their credit histories and everything because they apply for the apartment, sure. right? And they were going out, they were leaving me because every every tenant leaves gets an exit interview, right? And so they were leaving because they were getting $300,000 30-year fixed-rate mortgages on houses. Wow. <laughs> and they didn't even qualify to rent a $500 a month apartment from me. The only reason they were in there is because I was scraping the dregs in order to fill my units because credit was so permissive at the time that pretty much anybody that could fog a mirror could get a loan. Yeah, yeah I remember I, we had just moved from Scotland and I was working remotely for a Scottish company under, I had no sort of contract, like long-term contract. I was just pretty much working month to month for them, uh, making not a great wage because, you, you know, Scottish wages are quite low compared to American wages. Um, and my wife was going back to school, so she wasn't working at all. And I, I got approved for something like a 470 thousand dollar mortgage or something like that and i was like what that is absolutely insane um and yeah it's it's no it's it's no wonder the whole thing came collapsing down but uh but yeah Yeah, so I i knew enough about supply demand to know that you know the demand for housing and the demand for property is fueled by permissiveness of credit right and so that's why you see the fed trying to pump up the housing market by pumping up the credit markets Right. Mm -hmm. That's what drives the demand. And then when the interest rates are low, it increases the valuation levels, too, because interest is your highest cost of owning. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I knew enough about supply, demand and pricing to know that the numbers didn't make any economic sense whatsoever. 
Um, and then, so it, it was, it was, I knew that somewhere I would be able to reenter below what I was getting out at. I just didn't know how or what it would transpire with. Sure. Right. Cause it was so far away from reality. It made no sense. I mean, I had clients coming to me, you know, like I said, at that point, everybody wanted to get rich in real estate. So I had clients come to me trying to do deals down Southern California where if they, these were lowest interest rates in history at that time, they get, they went lower after that. But anyway, at lowest rates in history up to that point, they, they couldn't even pay the mortgage. Like if they had zero vacancy, zero expenses, zero overhead, Jeez. zero anything that went wrong, right? And all they did was collect rent. They still couldn't pay the mortgage. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. It, the only possible way to make money in a deal like that is if a greater fool comes along and pays even more for it. Right. There's no possible way to make money in a situation like Which that. Which that went on for quite a, quite a while as well. <laughs> it just well, kept... No, around that time, that was just about the top. Oh, that was about the top. Yeah, this is when all this went down. So I had ancillary evidence, and I just said, you know what? I don't want to carry any leverage risk here. I want no financial leverage when this comes unwound. And so I sold everything except my house. I even had a uh, property tax lien company where we got property on back taxes. Mm. And I sold that company and sold all the real estate in it. I sold everything except the house I live in. Wow. So so you mentioned a lot of, you know, just like broad economics things. I know you studied economics in college. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Is so that it, was my... Oh, sorry. That was your undergrad or... Yeah, it was my undergrad degree. Okay. So is that something you'd recommend to other people who, you know, maybe want to be more clued up to things like this and, you know, recognize these sorts of patterns. Um, obviously that the housing example was a pretty blatant example. Um, but it's still, most people in society still missed it. But, um, is, is that what you recommend just, you know, general economic no, principles? Or? Most, of, most of my knowledge has come subsequent to college, just studying the markets extensively. I mean, I, I'm a nuthead for this stuff, right? I, uh, you know, I had walls of books. It was so bad that I had to box them up in order to make room for new books. And then the boxes started stacking up in the garage. And so then literally I held a sale on eBay and I sold off hundreds and hundreds of books on eBay. And I mean, I had collections. Some of it was back into like early or late 1800s. I had some books back into late 1800s and stuff like really old texts. Um, so, I mean, I, I've been kind of pretty feverish about learning this stuff. Any uh, um, any standouts that uh, that I should add to the the show notes that people can maybe check out? Any favorites that you would gift to somebody if you know if they're interested really, in investing? Not really, because um, you know it's always been tidbits. I get a tidbit here, I get a tidbit there, I get a good idea here, a good idea there. And the thing that's weird about me is I assemble this stuff. So, like if you were in my office, you'd see I have file cabinets behind me, and I have file drawers all for different topics. And then they have subfiles in them, and I just constantly assemble information. Um, that's so a great way that, to do it. Yeah, so that's how I work. And so I've just been able to kind of assimilate it and put it all together into different things that are meaningful. Um, so I, I, there's no standout books because there, there's so many different topics. You know, like if you want to understand valuation, I'm looking over on my shelf right now. And there's a really cool book. It's out of print, but Valuing Wall Street. It, but, you know, it, again, I'm just pulling this one because I can see it. Right. And, and the sidebar print, it's not like it's a standout, but I can remember that was really cool to understand about Tobin's Q ratio and how Q ratio relates as far as a valid, a valid valuation timing system for the markets and what the limitations are. That's, 
that was an interesting learning for me to, to add that little tidbit to my tool, you know, another tool to my toolbox. Right. Yeah. You know, and then I'm looking, I've got Charles Ellis's Winning the Losers Game, which is a classic text right next to it. I'm just pulling the ones that are sitting on the shelf that I can see. Um, and that book was interesting because it showed me so many of the flawed reasonings and the contradictions in the traditional buy and hold approach. Um, but yet it's a bestseller and really popular with that, with that group. And so I actually did a book study group uh, with followers just to see what they thought of it. And they were so blown away that it's what prompted me to start developing my investment courses. When I went through and analyzed that book and showed what the latest research showed and all the contradictions stuff, people were just blown away. What, um, what was the name of that one again? Because I would, I would be interested in checking that one out. But, it, but the book itself is not a great book. Oh, I'm right. not trying to criticize Charles Ellis. I used it as a teaching tool to show the common misconceptions. Mm hmm and how stuff's put together. And he's got some interesting data in there. But again, it's tidbits, right? Right. And then the book next to that is by Nassim Taleb, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but it's Fooled by Randomness. Oh, yeah. Now, that's an interesting book because what that teaches is the tremendous, tremendous importance of long-tail distributions, fat-tail distributions in understanding investment strategy. Because the way Taleb worked was he was an options trader, right? Right. So he would he would lose the bulk of the time, but boy, when those fat tail distributions come in, he would rake it in. Right. Yeah. He, I read Anti Fragile, and in there he had he had talked about you know rather than you know having a all invested in you know a sort of like a medium risk index fund that covers the whole market, you know maybe be mostly invested in something that's very safe. And then have, you know, 10, 20% in something that's much more risky, but has a, you know, the potential for that, those outside, outsized gains. Um, I was wondering if you, you could talk on that at all. I don't, I'm not an advocate of that. I teach expectancy investing. Everything's based on mathematical expectancy. Right. And so why would I mix a low expectancy product with a high expectancy, but high risk product? I'm not, I'm not getting the logic of that. I have great respect for Taylor, but that's not how I approach it. Cool. Yeah, no, that's, that's great to hear. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't read fooled by Ram randomness, but, um, he, he talks a lot about that in anti-fragile, which I highly recommend as well. It's a, it's a great book. Uh, yeah. And then the, the book next to it, just to stay with this, right? The book next to it's the crowd by Gustav Le Bon, which is a Le bon, which is a classic text in crowd psychology and how crowds get it wrong and how they go nuts. Nice. <laughs> and so, you know, that's part, that part of learning is part of what grounds me in understanding when I'm in bubbles and manias that make no sense economically and that gives me the strength to go against them. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm pointing out like it's not like any one of these stand out. I'm literally looking. That was four books in a row sitting on my shelf that I kept after I sold like hundreds and hundreds of books. I happen to have kept those. Well, that's it's great advice too because, you know, just read as much as you can. And that's something that I've been doing uh, over the last, I don't know, six months, uh, just reading, yeah, reading a wide range of books and all different sort of uh, topics. And, and yeah, you're right, you pick up, you know, a few things here and there. Um, but then those stick with you and can help you see things that maybe others can if they're just, you know, hyper focused on one particular thing. Yeah, and each one is a, like a cog in my total understanding of how the markets work. They each, they're each sharing little pieces of how the game is played properly and how the puzzle pieces fit together. Nice. Yeah, no, I can completely agree. That's great advice. Um, so, yeah, so you talk a lot about wealth building, um, paper assets being one way. Uh, you also discuss uh, real estate and businesses. Um, so you mentioned you had some real estate. You, you since sold um, 
maybe you can talk about if, if that still plays a part, if you've since rebought any real estate or if you're just instead focusing on sort of the business side of things. No, I missed the whole move up after the um, 2009 bottom in real estate. Um, I frankly didn't believe that the problems were over and I still don't believe the problems are over. And so that's a great illustrator. I'm more than happy to miss opportunity. I have a little saying in my head, which is, you know, the deal of the century comes along every year. Um, and so I don't mind missing opportunity. I'll step away from opportunity every day of the week if I'm not totally clear. Right. Um, I only want to do a deal when I'm highly confident. I really feel I've got the puzzle pieces together and I can manage the risk. And to me, taking on financial leverage and acquiring real estate in 2009 turned out to be an incredibly smart decision in hindsight. But literally, you're stepping up to the plate and grabbing a falling knife um, in a complete credit crunch. And you had to believe that all the Fed bailout policies were actually going to turn the tide. And fortunately for you know the public at large, it did at least temporarily kick the can down the road. Um, but that you know, I couldn't make that bet. I wasn't willing to bet my future, economic future on that. Mm. So I, I, I missed the rise back up. Yeah, no, that's at least you, yeah, at least you got out in time, which, you know, wealth preservation Big is up. more risk, important. Risk management. Right. Yeah. Risk management is the key to the, the game. You know, nobody's ever going to play the game perfectly, right? Right. What you want to do is you want to play the game where you consistently make higher highs and higher lows. Everyone's going to have setbacks. Everyone's going to make mistakes, me included. And so as long as you're managing your risk to where you make higher highs and higher lows, you're doing about as well as you can. If you look at the research on how actual real-world investor accounts perform, it's pretty dismal. Um, you know, they radically underperform the indexes, thus, you know, the claim why passive indexing is the, the strategy du jour and all sure. that. Um, but there's other reasons why investors average investors radically underperform so um you know just again just take it easy on yourself because we all hear stories of these amazing scores and these amazing moves everybody makes mistakes just manage your risk and consistently make higher highs and higher lows and you're doing quite well nice okay so and then the third pillar of your sort of wealth building focus um is businesses and yeah um especially for people wanting to pursue early financial independence. It's a, you know, a way to get there a bit quicker than just relying on, you know, paper assets or, you know, dealing with leverage in the real estate game. So, um, yeah. Well, let, let's, let's look at it as a quick puzzle piece, just put it together for your listeners. Sure. Right. So if you're going to go, okay. So, so the, everything you know about wealth building is one sentence, right? Make less, make more than you spend and invest the difference wisely. Yep. Right. Or spend less than you make and invest the difference wisely, depending on how you want to phrase it. And so there's three dimensions, right? You've got make more, spend less, invest wisely. So there's three dimensions to the puzzle. And so then you can take each one of those and kind of subdivide it, right? So like, you know, there's the conventional frugality path, mm -hmm. right? And so that's where you get your spending way down. And the reason that's powerful from the financial independence standpoint is because your, the assets required to support financial independence are a multiple of your spending, sure. right? So the more you drop your spending, the lower the, you know, the dramatically lower the assets are required to support it. Um, so that's one path. It has a downside limitation, plus then it puts you on a path of permanent frugality. And so for some people, that's fine. For some people, it's not. It just depends on your values. You know, then you've got the make more where you can maximize your income. And again, none of these are right, wrong. Right, they're all valid and they're all fundamental, you know, different approaches to it. Sure, and they sure. can be, and none of them are mutually exclusive. They can be grouped together. 
right? So you can spend less and make more, as I did, right? I kept my spending at a college kid level, and then I made a whole bunch more. Mm-hmm. And so making more is done primarily through business. Um, as it turns out, you know, the two fastest paths to building wealth are uh, entrepreneurship and real estate. And that's not just me saying it, the stats document it. And there's a, a logical reason why, which is you've got uh, tax advantages and uh, leverage right, possibilities right. that allow you to ramp up both a business and a real estate portfolio. Paper assets are typically best used as a wealth preservation, uh, wealth growth vehicle. You know, just try to grow your wealth in excess of inflation, and you're doing well in the paper asset game. Sure. And if sure. you and if you can grow it in excess of inflation and support spending, then you're doing very well. All right, that's a, yeah, that's a great rundown. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour. Um, you you write a a bit about happiness, which is you know obviously the the main aim of the whole game. Um, uh, and I'm going to actually read a quote uh, from I think it's your Secret of Happiness, the Secret to Happiness post. Um, when I achieved financial freedom and quit working, the biggest realization I had was that I was the same guy. I had the same hangups, <laughs> personal issues, facing the same life I had before. The only difference was now I had a lot more time to wallow in it and no, <laughs> and no distractions or excuses from the presumed workaday life script to distract me from seeing the truth about my life. Now, that is, yeah, that's, uh, even though I haven't stepped away from work, I, you know, once I hit my number, I realized nothing really had changed and the happiness that I thought would come from hitting that number really didn't, uh, you know, appear because why would it? <laughs> in hindsight, it didn't make any sense, but, you know, when you're working towards that, uh, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy when I get there. And then, but, um, so I want to just have you talk a little bit about that, you know, transition from working in the hedge fund to, uh, not working. Um, and you know, what, how you were able to sort of find the path to happiness after realizing that, you know, freedom alone wasn't going to give it to you. Yeah. Talk about highs and lows. You know, so selling the business and, you know, I had been socking away money up to that and then we sold the business. And so, you know, suddenly I'm unfinancially independent and, you know, I was going to be marrying my longtime girlfriend who became my wife, who's still my wife. And we were planning on traveling, which I told you about earlier. We did a kind of a six month trip through Europe and Middle East. And I'd always wanted to just backpack around for a while, right? Just to have nothing but, uh, you know, what's on my back, you know. And so we did that. And that was kind of the beginning of the unwinding, right? So the, the high I explained was both figuratively and euphemistically. So we'd sold the company. I was taking my computers down to my assistant who lived in the valley. So I was living at Lake Tahoe and my assistant lived down the Carson Valley. And so I'm literally driving over the summit of the mountains, looking down over the valley. And that was figuratively the, and actually the high point, right? Mm-hmm. I dropped off the computers. I'm high as a kite. I'm free. I'm free. You know, like suddenly everything's going to be solved. And then we took off, we got married and then took off on that trip. And the trip was everything you would dream it would be for about a month and a half, right? So about a month and a half into the trip, I started kind of waking up and the trip started becoming the new job. Like this is before the Euro, right? So you'd hit a new country and you go exchange your currency and then you, you know, you go do the sites and of course the church is the highest point in the town and you go climb the steeple and then war seems to dominate most history so then you see the museums and the collections of war artifacts and history and like it started taking this pattern you know you got to pick out what restaurants you're going to you hit the town you got to pick where you're staying 
and it, it just became – I mean, I don't want to sound sarcastic. I'm so blessed to have taken the trip, right? I, I will always tre treasure that trip. But it was that gradual wake up from vacation to reality that this is my new reality. I can do this permanently. I could travel permanently. And then you start questioning, is that what I want? Right. Right? Do I really want to live this life forever? You know, and then we came back to Tahoe and started to try to recreate our lives. I did some failed businesses, you know, trying to reground myself. Uh, made the usual mistake. I went, I did uh, hedge funds, fund to fund uh, due diligence. So I went back into my old pattern, which is what most people do, right? Because that's where there's immediate demand for their services and they have expertise and it feels comfortable and familiar. You know, the idea of starting a website and becoming a financial educator is like way out of left field, right? right. For a guy that ran a hedge fund. Um, but ultimately that was my path, but I didn't know it at the time. So, you know, it was all these highs and lows. And then as the lows set in and I started questioning like, you know, what, what the heck is wrong with me? Like, you know, what's up? You know, dude, you got your financial independence. You know, you can do anything you want with your life. And what I started realizing is happiness is an interesting thing. It's, it's like a cat, right? You can't call the cat to you. It'll never come, right? You can't demand that cat to, to present itself because the cat will never show. You have to like make your lap a really comfortable, warm place. You have to, in, the cat has to feel invited in. And that's how happiness is. Like you have to run your life in a way that it sort of invites happiness in. That's a great. That's a great analogy. Um, so, how did you? How did you start doing that? Well, one of the things I learned about myself, and I, it's true for most people, but I don't want to overgeneralize. Everybody's different. I mean, sure. some people could probably find happiness through their own narcissistic, um, you know, self indulgence of what's going to make me happy today, right? right. But that didn't work for me. Um, I'm. I found that I needed things that are bigger than me, uh, and I need to be driven by something, a cause that's bigger than me. You know, there's a lot that comes from work that we don't realize, you know, a sense of contribution, uh, something we're committed to, uh, a sense of purpose. We have friends and relationships through the workplace. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that leads to our happiness that we don't really give full credit to until it's gone. And so um, I started getting grounded much more once I started Financial Mentor um, in 98, 97. I... Um, I started finding, you know, that contribution, that sense of giving back, that sense of having a purpose, a sense of building something that mattered. Um, so here, I'll read you something really quick. It's up on my wall above my computer. Um, hopefully I can see it. I got a horrible reflection. Uh, let me move the mic. It says, it's a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and this is part of what drives me. It says, it's success. It says, to laugh often and much to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics. Boy, don't we know that one, Brandon, right? right. <laughs> and to endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others. Now, this is where it gets really on. To leave the world a bit better, whether by healthy child, a garden patch, or redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. Nice. Yeah, so that's right above my computer. The only piece on the wall above my computer I see every day, the only other thing that stands there is a, a genuine million mark note <laughs> from, the, from the German Weimar Republic to always remind me about what money really is. Right. Nice. That's really good. Um, 
you were talking about, you know, having a, having a purpose bigger than you and having goals. And there's another article you wrote, um, that I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, are you making this early retirement mistake? And you talk about, wow, dude, you did your research, man. Oh man. That's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's what I do. <laughs> um, you did good. Good. Um, yeah, but you talk about going away goals lead to momentary satisfaction, you know, yeah. the, like the honeymoon period that you literally had on your honeymoon, I guess. Um, you know, and then dismay and discontent set in, whereas going toward goals are actually what lead to happiness and fulfillment, uh, presumably because yeah. you're making progress toward those goals. You can see the progress and yet you still have something to work towards. Um, and I think that's probably a big mistake that a lot of future early retirees make is that they're just concerned with, you know, ditching the job and they really don't have anything lined up uh, for afterwards. And um, go. And yeah, so I, I've, I've, I've been lucky in the sense that I sort of feel like this, for me personally, this is like a transitory phase of I'm now working remotely. So it's sort of like I have a job, but sort of like I don't. Um, and I'm trying to get a lot of habits in place now, working towards goals that I'm going to want to work towards once I finally quit um, in hopes that I'll, you know, have momentum, which will then, you know, keep me from coming out of the gate really lazy and then having a, you know, the big struggle of, well, I'm not actually doing anything. Um, is there any other tips you think would be good to, 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 you know, keep people from that trap, um, or anything that you found, or is it just really just, yeah, just try to start picturing those goals that you're going to start working towards? Yeah, I think you said it really well. Um, people who are very motivated by financial independence are typically away goalers. They're, trying to get away from the man, they're trying to get away from the job, whatever restrictions they perceive money doing. Here's the challenge. Um, it's a setup, it's a recipe for disappointment. And the reason for that, when you want financial freedom, what, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to honor an internal value, which is freedom, personal freedom, right? right. And what happens is, is you project that lack of freedom that you experience personally onto money because you can, it's obvious and all around you how money's limiting you when you don't have financial freedom. So it's a logical, reasonable thing, right? But what happens is anytime you project an internal value onto an external thing, it sets you up for disappointment. That's why when you achieve financial freedom, if you're not clear on what's going on and why you're doing the things you're doing, you're going to end up disappointed like I did and it sounds like you did also. Right, yeah. And so, and that's because we both made the mistake, right? We were going away from something and what we were doing is we were projecting our internal value of freedom onto an external thing called money. And you can't do that, right? It's, it, you can only experience an internal value through an internal experience. It's not an external thing. And so that's why it results in disappointment. And so when I'm coaching clients, what I do is I work with them around next steps and visions and dreams of where they really want to go. It's not about what they want to leave behind, but what do they really want to do? The neat thing about that and how it plays into financial independence is it opens up a lot of myths because, you know, the way we structure financial independence traditionally is you have to amass this wad of cash and you got to get your expenses down to a certain level to where you're spending a certain percent of your portfolio, blah, 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 right? We've all heard the song and dance. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's how it's traditionally perceived. But when you really start getting clear on what you really want where you're really going with it, then what happens is you start realizing, gosh, I'm not really looking to never work again. I'm just looking to create this over here and it's going to take me a few years to do it. And you start realizing that maybe a bridge fund is good enough. 
Right. And you can start living a truly free life much earlier than you had thought otherwise was possible. It opens up a lot of possibilities when you start getting clear and getting rid of the myths in your mind about why you're doing these things. That's, yeah, that's amazing advice. And that's something that yeah, really made a big impact on me and my wife in particular. Like she just, she didn't see the point. Uh, she liked her job. She liked her life. She's like, why am I going to just, you know, save everything I can for, for no reason when I'm just going to keep doing the same thing. Um, and it was only once we really started talking about like, yeah, actually how we could make our lives better by, you know, spending more time abroad and, uh, seeing family since both of our families live on op opposite continents. Um, and yeah, it wasn't until we put into that frame of mind that she's like, Oh, now I, now I see why that's, why that's a, a good thing to, to work towards. Um, not at the expense of, you know, limiting our current life, but you know, it is something to work towards that we could actually make our lives better. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I, I don't want to take anything away from financial independence. I'm agreeing with you hundred percent. It's a great lubricant to life, but it's not a substitute for life. And it's not that, that kind of a goal. Like it's, it's just a lubricant to life. When you have financial independence, you still got to go lead your life. You still got to create happiness. You still got to go do stuff. All it does is lubricate things. It allows you to pick and choose, uh, it allows you to make your choices as opposed to being restricted. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're getting near to the end of the interview here. Um, I usually ask all my guests, you know, if if someone's just starting out on the path to financial independence, is there any one particular thing that you would, you know, one piece of advice you'd offer them? Um, it could be, you know, investment related. It could be just happiness related, or just just on the on the path itself. Something about the path to to this. And goal, um, is there anything that you would offer them? Well, it's something you and I share. I mean, it's a scientific process. This is not, you know, it's not luck. It's not random. It doesn't take amazing intelligence. Uh, there's a science to it. And so, you know, you teach the same stuff I do. It's not like there's some big secret out there. And so, you know, read your site. Read my site. Go read Pete's site. You know, Mr. Money Mustache is what I'm referring to with Pete's site. You know, go read this stuff. It's free. You don't have to pay us a dime and and go learn. And it's it's pretty straightforward. Yes, there are some more advanced topics. You know, I'm gonna have paid courses for some more advanced stuff, whatever. But um it's it's pretty straightforward. You mo most of what you need to know is free. Uh, absolutely. That's great advice. Um Yeah, just take action. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's yeah, don't read forever. That's that's another trap I think people get in. <laughs> get ready, just, get ready. Yeah, right? they just keep getting ready and never actually do something. So, um, you so, know, you know, I will throw something else in. Actually, yeah, please, please. You're oh, saying that is, um, you have to commit to the pro. You have to be clear about your commitment. Like I talked about it that day in the park, and I, you probably had. Did you have a commitment process where like you got really clear and committed? Oh yeah, just when I stumbled. Yeah, I stumbled on early retirement extreme back in I don't know twenty eleven or something. And I'd always been a good saver up until that point, but I really had no goal. I just liked the idea of having money um, and security. So, uh, but once I realized that early retirement was possible, that's when I was just like, whoa, that's yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm. My goal is, and that's what I'm going to work towards. But what carried you through the difficulties? You know, like for me, I had a lot of setbacks. I, it wasn't just a straight line path for me. Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't, I didn't get carried through very well. Like there was a definite period of a couple of years where it was, you know, I wasn't happy. I was really, you know, I was so uh, focused on the goal that, you know, <laughs> I made myself really unhappy and it made my wife really unhappy. 
And it was only yeah. once we emerged on the other side that I realized I, I did it really wrong. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, my path was definitely not something to emulate, um, in any way. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Cause I was just so focused that nothing else mattered. And obviously I wasn't focusing on my happiness or my wife's happiness or anything like that. And that was, that was a big, a big mistake. So. Yeah. yeah the, the key I think is you have to be clear on your commitments. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you really committed to? Um, what are you doing it for? You know, what does it look like to you? How are you putting it together? What's next steps? Like clarity of mind causes clarity of actions and produces results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's excellent advice as well. Um, so yeah, is it, if anyone wants to get in touch with you or read more, obviously they can go to financialmentor.com. Um, is your email there? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's my hub. Everything you can find anything else from there. So uh, it's financialmentor.com, and I give away subscriber bonuses. There's a free course, Fifty Two Weeks of Financial Freedom, and no, it's not Get Rich Quick. It's uh, you know <laughs> I probably should change the title, but what I'm trying to communicate is a fifty two week course that explains how financial freedom works. It goes through the structures. And then, um, and then I give away a free book, 18 Essential Lessons of a Self-Made Millionaire. And it just goes through some of my life lessons, a lot of what we talked about here, but other stuff too, um, as, as I was on my journey and how I kind of learned my lessons. Excellent. So those, well, are all free, those are all freebies. Perfect. I'll link to, yeah, I'll link to both of those if they have their own landing pages. If not, uh, I'll just link to the main site and people can, can sign up for that. That sounds excellent. Um, Todd, I really appreciate it. It's been an, it's been a really fun talk and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's good talking with you. All right. Take care. Finance.